on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Dr. Scott Williams about conciliar Trinitarianism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what in the world does he mean by a conciliar social model of the Trinity? What accounts for the unity of action of the persons of the Trinity? What in the world should we think of about when it comes to personhood and the Trinity? What should we think about when it comes to consciousness and mental tokens about the Trinity? What is William Hasker's multi-power view of the Trinity, and what are the particular challenges that come with his versus things like the Fifth and the Sixth Ecumenical Councils? And so much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and online institution that's seeking to promote serious thinking for a serious church. And when we say serious thinking, we try to give you some examples of what that looks like. So we think serious thinking definitely means things like critical thinking. We think it means having a rigorous argument, uh, exposing yourself to counterexamples, and being willing to understand all the breadth and the nuances that go on. But we also mean it in sort of a, a virtuous sort of disposition, things like charity and curiosity. And for us, it's cheerful confessionalism. And so we've really tried to hold these things together and create or promote or encourage at least some sort of intellectual climate or culture that values these sorts of things. They say, you know what, I want to be serious about um, the actual aspects of an argument, the actual aspects of understanding a topic. I want to know all there is to know about it, and I don't want to be afraid of knowing too much. But there's also the flip side of I don't want to become a self-righteous, pompous jerk about it and feel like I know everything there is to know and no one can teach me or train me anything. We want to have this sort of meekness that comes with what wisdom, which we look to different texts in Scripture. We find things like James 3, where it talks about this wisdom that's from above, and we see that it's meek and it's open to open to reason and all these sort of things. And we just tried to distill that into a couple things. So that's what we mean, serious thinking for a serious church. Uh, we think we need more serious thinking in all sorts of topics, all sorts of venues. Today, I am very interested and looking forward to introducing you all uh, for a second time, for those of you who regularly listen, Dr. Scott Williams. So Scott was with us on a special roundtable uh, live episode with Oliver Crisp, Tom McCall, and uh, Tim Paul, and we were talking about all things classical theism, and I wanted to have Scott back on because he's doing so many cool, interesting, and really, really uh, important areas of work related to Trinitarianism, the ecumenical councils, uh, how we should think about how the divine persons relate. And it's just, his stuff is fascinating. So I thought we need to have him back on. And he's also doing other cool stuff too. So he's got like a book, edited book on like disability theology and, and medieval theology um, and other relevant things, which all of our nerd listeners, I know all of you guys will now have to go Google it and find it and get a copy of it because uh, Scott is awesome. So Scott, before we get get started... Uh, for those of you, the, uh, our listeners who don't know anything about you, give me a little bit of background about yourself, you know, wh where you teach now. And then I want to know, what was it that drew you to these topics for the first time? Was it something you were studying when you were in graduate school? Was it something before that, a burning question, those sort of things? Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really glad to be back. Um, I'm a, an associate professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina in Asheville, 
I primarily teach uh, philosophy courses, uh, and sometimes I teach in the philosophy of religion and the history of philosophy, uh, especially medieval philosophy and uh, Islamic or Arabic philosophy. Um, what got me interested in Trinitarian theology goes all the way back to my conversion when I was a teenager. Um, when I began to learn about Christianity, I learned about um, the Trinity um, and, and the liturgy um, and re even reading some C.S. Lewis. And I, I sort of carried that interest with me through my teen years. And then um, by the time I got to graduate school, I was still interested in theology, and I ended up doing a DPhil in scholastic theology um, under Richard Cross at Oxford University. And there I was um, exposed to the fine-grained details of scholastic Trinitarian theology. And I think that all the work that I've been doing was made possible because of my exposure to their writings over many years to understand the details of issues in Trinitarian theology and just to understand what issues there are. Um, and so a lot of my work is sort of building off of that kind of research. And I've sort of grown in different directions, both in earlier in time in the councils, the ecumenical councils, and also um, thinking about what Trinitarian theology might mean for other areas in theology or philosophy. Um, specifically, I've thought about disability and personhood. Um, yeah, so that's about me. Yeah, very awesome. So we're going to talk, I think, primarily conciliar Trinitarianism and personhood. That Obviously, that's important for it. So why don't we just start with when we talk about conciliar Trinitarianism, what do we mean? I think we have, uh, for our podcast, we probably have a lot of people who are listening who grew up broadly evangelical in some sense. So terms like conciliar Trinitarianism, not used regularly. Um, they, like for me, I just think of my example. I'm like, if someone had talked, said conciliar, I would have had no framework or clue what that meant. So let's just place that in context before we jump in. Sure. By conciliar Trinitarianism, I'm referring to the first seven ecumenical councils um, and whatever they teach regarding the Trinity. And so for people who haven't studied that history, they might find themselves still believing things like Jesus is one person who's divine and human. Most Christian churches teach that. And if people are asked, well, where do you get that? They'll look to scripture, but at some point in their investigation, they'll come to recognize that the ecumenical councils address that question and give pronouncements about what you should think and what you should reject. Um, and so a lot of people, when they begin to investigate the history of theology, eventually they're going to end up looking at what the ecumenical councils have said. So in many liturgical churches, they'll proclaim the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, right, which comes from the first two ecumenical councils. And so for people who say those or proclaim those in churches, they're already kind of participating in ecumenical theology or the conciliar theology of the councils. And so with the conciliar Trinitarianism, what I was interested in discovering was whether or not the councils say anything more about the Trinity besides the first and the second ecumenical councils. And so when I began reading through um, the councils, I discovered that it was the Sixth Council, um, who on, there's only a few partial translations of it. So last summer I read through all the Acts in the, in the original language, um, which was in Greek, and there was a Latin translation the year after the council uh, happened. So I was able to borrow from the Greek, uh, or for the Latin and the Greek. Um, and so in 
in reading that, I found statements about the Trinity and those statements used in support of what the council was saying about Christ having two wills. And so I discovered that there are statements about the Trinity in there, and those statements are more precise than what you get in any of the previous ecumenical councils. And so I published just this past week an article on the discovery of the Trinitarian theology of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. If you go looking in any secondary literature for this topic, odds are you will not find anything about it. And then the reason is because most of the attention, the target issue of the council was addressing bishops who were denying that Christ has two wills, the human will and the divine will. Um, and most of the English translations focus on those excerpts of the council. And rightly so. That was the target issue that motivated the council. But once you dig into the council, you see that it used statements and specific judgments concerning the Trinity to support what it says about Christology. And then when you look at the historical backgrounds that led up to the Sixth Council, which was in 680 and 681, you see that there were uh, what historians might call tritheist kinds of accounts of the Trinity. And so the Sixth Council rejected those in its statements. And so we get a little bit more precision. Um, and so in the article, I sort of unpack that a bit more. So that's conciliar Trinitarianism, just whatever the councils say about the Trinity, what you should affirm and what you should reject. Yeah, I think when you sort of talked about discovering this, I had no idea that there was so much robust Trinitarianism hanging out in the Sixth Ecumenical Council. I think my assumption had always been, well, I guess just to be honest, I've read the like the actual creedal formula, and that would probably be it. And then everything else I've read about it is focusing on, does Christ have two wills? Does he have one will? So finding out that, hey, there's a bunch of robust Trinitarianism was pretty awesome. So you've published several articles, and I guess originally you called your model of the Trinity sort of this Latin social model, and since then you've changed it to be the conciliar social model, or is it the conciliar model? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the um, conciliar social model. Perfect. Okay, so what do we mean by that? Because I think a good amount of our listeners are have gotten into these sort of Trinitarianism, gotten into conciliar Trinitarianism, gotten into these sort of topics, and when they hear social it's almost like alarm bells go off and say, I don't want to have a social Trinitarianism that's bad. That means there are three distinct wills in the Godhead, and that it feels like it's dangerously close to to tritheism of some sort. So when you use the word social, I think they need a little bit of unpacking and explanation for what's going on there. So what is your account? And then help me with the social word, especially. Oh, Sure. So I chose the title or the label Latin Social as a way to signal to contemporary uh, readers of contemporary philosophical theology that I was proposing a model that was a kind of a hybrid of what Brian Lafto labeled a Latin model and what others have labeled a social model. And so um, what I get from the Latin model is the numerical unity, numerical one divine nature, numerically one divine will. Um, all the divine persons share numerically the same volitions. They share numerically the same um, acts of intellect, which we can get into those details later in the model. What makes it social is that I was trying to account for some proposed facts about the Trinity. And this is something that has motivated some uh, social Trinitarian models. And those proposed facts are that it, it seems like we should be able to say that 
the first divine person knows that they're the first divine person. The Father knows that they're the Father. The Son knows that they're the Son. The Holy Spirit knows that they're the Holy Spirit. And so what social Trinitarians infer from these proposed facts is that, so it looks like each divine person must have their own unshared active intellect. The Father's act of knowing himself, the, the Son's act of knowing themselves, the Spirit's act of knowing themselves. So you have three distinct intellectual acts. Each of those acts is unique to each divine person, and none of those acts are shared with the other persons. And the reason why they're unshared is because if the Son thinks that the Son is the Father, the Son would think of something false. But given that the Son has no false beliefs, or doesn't you know lack knowledge concerning uh, which divine person they are, it looks like you're motivated to say each of the divine persons has their own intellectual act. And so I've wanted to resist that inference or that explanation of those proposed facts. And so in developing the model that I have, I've tried to account for those facts using what, um, uh, using what we call my one power model of the Trinity. So there's just one divine will, one divine intellect. Um, and so I've focused on, um, things we discovered in the philosophy of language um, and things called indexicals. And I've tried to use those things to give an account for those proposed facts. Um, so that's what I mean by a, a Latin social, Latin numerical, I, numerical unity of the divine nature, which the divine persons share. It's social because the divine persons have self-knowledge or what philosophers call day say knowledge. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I all you social Trinitarians who are listening, I didn't mean to offend you. So I've got friends like my man, Andrew Hollingsworth is probably listening right now. It's shaking his head. Uh, we mean no offense to want to say that there are no, not three wills in God, but just want to be consistent with the creeds, which I guess we'll get to that. Cause William Hasker talks about how he thinks his version is consistent there. Hopefully we'll get there. Cause we've got a lot of material to co cover. So um, you talk about, unity of action as sort of like this necessary condition for Trinitarianism uh, among the persons of the Trinity. How would, I guess, what is unity of action and how would you understand that versus someone like William Hasker or someone like Brian Leftow, uh, who you've mentioned already? So most scholars, when they're talking about unity of action, they'll use the phrase like the, the external operations of the divine persons are indivisible. And so the Claim So the claim is that the divine persons always agree or always do the same thing in relationship to creatures. So there's going to be no conflict of volitions regarding creatures. And so, for example, uh, a unity action would be like if, if prior to creation, the divine persons want to create a universe in which the earth rotates one direction around a sun, they all agree that that's the, going to be the rotation of the sun or the um the turning of the, of the earth. And so um, social Trinitarians like Hasker are going to say that what accounts for the fact that the divine persons don't disagree, the fact that they agree with each other, is is going to appeal to um, some other divine attributes like divine goodness, um, omnip um, omniscience. The divine persons know each other's minds as well as they possibly can. They are motivated to avoid conflict with each other. And so they're always going to agree on what to do regarding what I'm, what I've called um, um, contingent non-moral decisions. So the, it doesn't it doesn't make a moral difference which direction the Earth is going to go around the Sun, 
And so a decision has to be made if you're the creator of the universe. And so given that there's no moral reason for one ant where the other, it's going to be a, a contingent or arbitrary decision. And so somebody has to decide if you're thinking that there are three divine wills and they have to agree. And so Hassler is going to appeal to divine goodness or divine wisdom so that they get along with each other. Um, and so that's how um, Hasker is going to account for this uh, unity of action. Brian Leftow, I'm less uh, clear on what exactly his account was going to be. So far as I understand it, and this is my interpretation, which I hope Brian would correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that um, there's just one divine will, God's divine will, um, but God's divine God's um, volitions exist only in a stream of life. And God has three stream of lives. God lives as the life of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but each intellectual act exists only in one stream at a time, or one stream simultaneously. And so what that means is that the Father, or God the Father, is going to have a, a thought or a judgment about which way the earth should go around the sun, likewise the sun, and likewise the spirit. My understanding of Leftow's model is that he is basically in the same boat as Hasker. Even though there's one divine will, all the divine volitions um, are um, exist only in these three different streams of life, and a stream of life means intellectual acts and acts of will. And so uh, in the Father's stream of life, or the God the Father's stream of life, he's going to judge the earth to go one way, and God the Son's stream of life it's possible, metaphysically on the leftist model, for the sun to judge that it should go a different way. And there's nothing to prevent them having a disagreement other than appealing to some other divine attribute, maybe divine wisdom, divine goodness. But it would be a contingent agreement, as I see it. It would be a contingent agreement. It could be that there's um, disagreement regarding issues that there is no moral issue at stake. There's no moral difference that would be implied by a, a, the disagreement. Um, even if the divine persons agree on everything else, there could be a lack of unity of action. And so um, I think that Trinitarians should affirm the necessary unity of action of the divine persons. And there are different motivations for this. Um, one motivation might be that you want to account of the Trinity that's consistent with some version of Jewish theology. You want um, it to be somehow the same God that is being revealed uh, in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in, at Pentecost. Um, you might think that there should just be one divine will because of cosmological arguments. There's one ultimate source for why contingent things exist, not three ultimate sources. Um, and another uh Motivation, of course, might be, well, does the model fit with what the ecumenical councils have proclaimed? If the councils are a, a, an authoritative witness to you, whether you think they're infallible or fallible, but very reliable guides, you think um, uh, there should be unity of action because the councils proclaim it, specifically in the sixth council, where it says that there are no personal wills. Um, wills are tied to natures, not to persons. So that given that there's just numerically one divine nature, there's numerically one divine will. And so the divine persons share numerically the same volitions. And so the Sixth Council accounts for a unity of action set because they just share numerically the same volitions and numerically the same will. And if that's the case, they can't disagree. Literally, they can't. They can't get away with willing something, the other person willing something else, because whatever one person wills, the other person also shares that volition. 
And so the model that I've been cultivating or developing is is takes that on board and um, and affirms that and then tries to give an account of the first person stuff, which we can talk about later. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. And I'm glad to hear uh, your sort of summary and analysis of Left Out, because I've always read him and thought this is seems weird. So if you putting him in a similar bucket as Hasker with some of the potential implications makes me feel a little bit better about my reading comprehension. Um, I do want to talk about personhood because I think your work has an exceptionally rich uh, discussion on these topics and especially helpful. So you go on to suggest that sort of a Lockean account of personhood is susceptible to Trinitarian criticisms. So this, you know, Tradition, I th- I would guess probably, I mean, you can tell me if you think differently, but it seems that if I ask most people an account of personhood, they'd probably give me some sort of Lockean-ish account of personhood. Um, and then you try to say, well, Richard of St. Victor has a superior account of personhood. And for some, I guess a lot of people haven't read Richard of St. Victor, but I found your explanation of him and the way you defined it extremely helpful. So I want to know, just thinking through personhood, what's the Lockean account? What's Richard's account? How does it differ? How is it different? And how is it, in your opinion, superior? Okay. So uh, John Locke thinks that a person is a thinking thing that remembers things about itself. And so it requires a current intellectual acts, um, self-awareness, awareness of what's going on, intellectual acts specifically. Um, and then there's a memory criterion for counting as the same person through time. Um, so what's problematic about this? What's problematic about it for the Trinity, if you apply a Locke's account of person to the Trinity, is that if you're going to hear that there are three divine persons, then you're going to be tempted to say, okay, so each divine person has their own incommunicable intellectual acts because a person is an entity that has its own intellectual acts that are unshared with any other entity. And so you're going to be tempted right away to go from a Lockean account of personhood to saying there are three distinct divine intellectual acts. Now, Leftow is going to try to avoid it by saying, well, there's just one divine intellectual power, one divine will. It just generates these three different streams or um, three tokens of the same type of volition or three tokens of the same type of uh, um, intellectual um, act. Um, but he, But he's going to do that because he thinks that a person requires this occurrence a mental act, whether it's an intellectual act or volitional act. Um, and that violates what Constantinople III says, um, because Constantinople III denies that um, acts of will or acts of intellect are tied to personhood, they're tied, rather they're tied to the nature. So the number of natures will tell you what the number of um, intellectual acts will be or the numbers of will will be. And so the way that this connected to Christology is that... Um, the councils want to say that Christ has a, the divine will and a human will. And because he has two natures, he's got a human will and a divine will. He's got human volitions and divine volitions, not because he's one person, but because, oh, sorry, it's because he's got two natures. It's the natures are the principle of action. And this goes back to Aristotle, um, surprisingly enough. Uh, and Boethius captures this too in his discussion of personhood that it, um, nature is the principle of action, um, not person. And so with the Lockean account, you're going to think a person is, so to speak, the, the principle of, of, of these acts. So you're going to have uh, three unshared intellectual acts or three unshared volitions um, on a Lockean account. 
when I wrote my articles a um, um, number of years ago, I appealed to Richard of St. Victor as a kind of, here's a, in the history of theology, it's something of a well-known definition. And Richard defines a person as an incommunicable existence of a intellectual nature. And so you notice in that definition, um, there's no appeal to an occurrent intellectual act. There's no appeal to an intellectual habit or um, a habit of will or a, a volition. It's just something that exists that is likely to come to have intellectual acts or volitions. Since I wrote that article, I've, I did a lot more research in the history of personhood. And I came to discover that in the, in the Greek world, in the Byzantine world, rationality is not included in the definition of hypostasis or prosopon. And so I, when I did some digging around, I came to see that it's at least with Boethius who inserts the term rational in the definition of person. And once you do that, there's a whole history of, of uh, philosophy and theology that gets, motiv- that gets influenced by Boethius's addition of rationality in the definition. And so what that gets people to begin to thinking is that intellectual acts and acts of will are tied to person, not to nature. Um, um, but in the Byzantine accounts of hypostasis, um, it's just an individual of some nature. I mean, that's roughly the account. There are fine-grained distinctions in the Byzantine debates about hypostasis, but it's roughly an individual of some nature. Um, and one bit of evidence I had for this sort of um, discovery, it was discovery to, for me anyways, was that there was a, the- a Latin theologian named Rusticus the Deacon who was writing around 550, if I remember right. Um, and he's debating with the, um, the Miaphysites and the Nestorians on Christology. And he's, it's a dialogue back and forth with one of these um, followers of Severus of Antioch. And so Rusticus proposes a definition of a person, and he says that a person is a, you know individual of a rational nature, which is Boethius's definition. And his interlocutor says, no, you don't need rational in it. It's just an individual of some nature. And then his response was, no, no, no. We distinguish between the rational beings and the non-rational beings. And so um, humans, angels, and the deity are the rational ones. Everything else is non-rational. And the Miaphysite says, no, why do you need this in your account of person for the for the incarnation? And then Rusticus doesn't really go on in detail to defend the insertion of rationality into it. But I took it as historical evidence that there's a disagreement about whether rationality goes in the definition of hypostasis or prosopon. And when I looked around, I found another Latin author who's a contemporary of Boethius named um, Maxentius, who's one of these Scythian monks who helped push the, the Fifth Council to make some declarations about what it did. And um, Maxentius... He's a Latin author, he's contemporary with Boethius, and he does not include rational in his definition of persona. And so that signaled to me that there's a sort of either Rome or Boethian uh, school that inserts rationality in the definition of person. So the Byzantine accounts don't include rationality in the definition of person. In medieval discussions, including Richard of St. Victor, they include rationality or, intel- or intellectuality in the definition of person, but it does zero work in their metaphysics of the Trinity. They don't think that um, a divine person has their own um, intellectual power that's unshared with the other divine persons. And so they avoid that kind of um, position because of that account of uh, person. Um, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I do also want to talk about related to personhood consciousness. 
and mental tokens. And I think this question is pretty relevant because I think, at least from my vantage point, it seems that a lot of the desire or intuitions that go behind wanting to have a social Trinitarianism that is designed to posit some sort of like I-thou relationship where the father can say, I am the father, the son can say, I am the son, and I am not the father, is motivated by this desire to have sort of the mental token, I am the father and I'm not the son. And you try to, I mean, you do, I think, successfully uh, work out an account of how the father, the son, and the spirit can have these mental tokens without positing a second and third divine will or divine intellect. So I'm just wondering, explain to me more this concept of consciousness that you have and how it can function in a way that there is a single will and a single intellect, and yet there are three mental tokens. Mm. Good. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, This is where the meat of the model is, uh, the, the contribution that I'm trying to make to Trinitarian theology. And so in philosophy, right, we have this distinction between tokens and types. A token is an individual instance of something. A type is just the kind. So you could have a quarter in your pocket, and it's a token of the type quarter. Right? So we have that basic distinction. And so we have um, sentences or token sentences. So the speech I'm producing right now is a token of American English. Um, it's of a type, right? And so, um, so I want to say that in intellectual life, there are also mental tokens or mental sentences. Um, you find this kind of discussion a, a little bit in Augustine and, and theologians influenced by Augustine when they think about mental language. And so I thought, oh, if that's a part of the tradition, uh, let's see if, what we can do with that uh, for the Trinity. And so um, if, if a social Trinitarian wants to claim that the Father has this thought or says something like, I'm the Father, then what I want to ask is, um, uh, what has to obtain for that to be true? So uh, in philosophy, if we want to define something, you say, you know, um, Bob is X, if and only if, and then you enumerate some conditions for Bob being X. And so on the left-hand side, we can have a sentence like, um, um, the, the father says, I am the father, right? And then I want to say, if and only if what? What has to be the case for that for that to be true? And so in the philosophy of language, I, uh, we learn that terms like I is uh, an example of um, terms that are called indexicals. Indexical terms are terms that are context sensitive. And what that means is that the meaning of the word depends on who's saying it and when and where. So examples would be like tomorrow or today or yesterday or here or now or I or you. Um, each of us could produce a token of the word I, but the referent would be different because the, the agent using it is different in each case, even though we're using the same word. And so um, I want to say, okay, so given that the divine persons share numerically the same divine intellect, they're going to use mental tokens to think a, a specific proposition. A proposition is just the content or the... the uh, what one is aware of when one uses a mental token. Um, so um, if we have a sentence like, I am the father, we have an indexical term, I, um, and that's going to be context sensitive relative to the agent using it. 
And then we also have the linking verb or the copula, am, or, you know, I am the father. And so um, people like Mike Ray and Jeff Brower, um, you know, a decade or more ago had advocated that, you know, there are different meanings of the, of the, the verb to be. You have identity or strict identity or Leibniz's account of, uh, of identity. We have predication. Um, they advocated for something called numerical sameness without identity, where you could say that the statue of Athena is um, numerically the same without being identical to the bronze that she's made up of, right? Um, so you could have numerical sameness without identity. So I thought, oh, cool. There are different ways or different things that the copula could express or different relations that the copula could express. So now we have an indexical term, I. We have the copula, which is ambiguous or could um, express different relations. And we've got the predicate, the father. And so if, if we say something like the father used the mental token of I am the father, then the question is, what is the proposition the father is aware of? It's going to be some, something like, um, you know, uh, that the, the, the father is identical to the father. Or um, there are different ways you could try to, to cash it out, but it's something like uh, the father is identical to the father. When the father uses the sentence, I am the father, the father is aware of a specific proposition, namely um, that they are identical to the father. Now, the son also shares numerically the same token. It's the, the father's using a token is, the, is identical to this, or this is numerically the same as the son's using a token. So the son also uses the sentence, I am the father, but because it's the son, the son is going to be aware of a different proposition because the I is context sensitive and the copula can express different relations. And so the son is going to be aware of a different proposition. The son is going to be aware of the proposition that they or the son is numerically the same divine nature as the father without being identical to the father. And so this is a way of cashing out some of the earlier patristic theologians when they talk about things like perichoresis, like the father, the son is in the father and the father is in the son. And so the father and the son literally use numerically the same mental sentence, I am the father, but they think different propositions. And the reason why that's the case is because the, the terms in the sentence are ambiguous or they're sensitive to context. And given that you have three divine persons or three divine agents, the I is going to be relative to the agent using it. So um, a way to put it would be to say that I've got these proposed ontological facts. Uh, the father plus this use of this mental token entails that the father is aware of a specific proposition, namely that they are identical to the one who's God the father. The son plus the same use of the, this mental token entails that the son is aware of the proposition that they are essentially numerically the same divine nature as the one who's God the father without being identical to God the father. So that's the proposition that the son would be aware of in using the mental token, I am the one who's God the father. And then analogously for the Holy Spirit, it's just the fact that the Holy Spirit plus the same use of this mental token entails that the Holy Spirit is aware of the proposition that they are essentially numerically the same divine nature as the one who's God the Father without being identical to God the Father. So here's an analogy um, to sort of help people's imagination with this. So suppose you've got three people and each of them are holding up numerically the same sign. So they're all using numerically the same written token. And suppose on the sign it says, I am happy. So we have, again, the indexical term I, you have am and happy. So here the case is going to be um, the copula is an express predication. And so they're going to use numerically the same token, but each one is going to uh, imply a different proposition. 
So if you have, I don't know, Harry, Sally, and June holding up the same sign saying, I'm happy, they're all going to be in, uh, implying different propositions, but they're using numerically the same written sentence. Um, and that's because the I is sensitive to the agent using it. Um, this is um, sort of a development of thinking more deeply about indexical terms. And initially, the example that I had that made me start thinking along these lines was an example from The Hobbit, uh, when Gandalf says to uh, uh, Bilbo Baggins, you know, or when Bilbo says to uh, Gandalf, good morning. And then Gandalf says, like, what do you mean? And then he gives a list of, like, four different interpretations. And Bilbo says, I mean, all of them at once. And then I started thinking about, ah, yes, what about sentences that could uh, imply different propositions? It's numerically the same thing that implies different propositions. Um, so I thought, ah, in the case of the Trinity, you can have numerically one use of a mental token, but there are different propositions that each divine person is aware of through, through sharing that same thing. So one way to uh, ex illustrate this is it's literally impossible for any divine person to think something without the other divine person thinking the, either the same thing or something that's really closely connected to it because they share all the same uh, uses of these divine mental tokens. And so it's literally impossible for them to disagree about anything because they're, um, they're, they're so uniquely tied together because they share numerically the same intellectual powers and numerically the same volitional powers. Well, anytime we have an episode that has Tolkien in it, it goes up to the top tier of episodes. I think you and Oliver Crisp, and I know somebody else has used illustrations from Tolkien, so that makes me happy. Um, I do want to ask you, uh, as a follow-up to this, William Hasker has written sort of replies to your model, and I can't remember how if, if it's just one reply or if he's written two replies, but I'm not trying to, so I'm not trying to pick on him just because, you know, as a representative social Trinitarian or something, just He's actually replied to you, so it makes it helpful. Everything I know from William Hasker is he's like a teddy bear. So I, I've and I've always found his work helpful in elucidating and clarifying some of this stuff. So he, I think you, I, I don't remember if he uses the term multi-power or if you use that. So just walk me through like what's Hasker's sort of reply to you? Why does he find your account unsatisfactory? Um. Yeah, so he's he's uh, in print. He's responded once, and in faith and philosophy later this year, he has two responses. Um, so one issue is going to have a response. He's writing a response to my twenty twenty article, and then I've written a response to his new one. And then faith and philosophy is also writing publishing his response to my new one. So in awesome. faith and philosophy, it's going to be three articles about all this stuff. Very um, cool. Um, okay, so. Uh, uh, when Hasker responded to my the proposed model I was giving, he, um, you know, labeled mine a one power model. And I'm happy with, with that description of that label. And then he said, well, his is a multi-power model because he's got for each divine person, you have a distinct divine power though. Hasker in email correspondence told me, you know, he's a, if I remember correctly, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, um, that you're anomalous regarding powers, but nevertheless, each divine person, uh, can exercise their own power without the divine other divine persons exercising that same power or the same um, token power. Um, and so what Hasker finds problematic with the model is all this stuff about, uh, I think with, uh, and with my account of the philosophy language stuff. So he worries that I don't really give a satisfying account of first person 
knowledge or self-knowledge in the case of the, the divine persons. And in my responses, I've tried to show, I hope successfully, um, that my model does account for this proposed fact that each divine person knows which divine person they are. Um, I think uh, uh, that Hasker may have either misunderstood some of the, the theory I was proposing because it, it gets um, th- it gets thick. <laughs> it gets detailed once you think about the difference between mental tokens and propositions that one is aware of through using mental tokens. Um, so I think I've, I've responded as well as I can, um, to his article, to his, uh, objections against, against this. Um, so yeah, so he thinks that it's just, you gotta say <clears throat> for each divine person, they have their own intellectual acts and he doesn't want to be, um, or he has resisted my invitation to get into the ontology of divine intellectual acts. He's wanted to affirm sort of reduction or a, um, I guess it's a straightforward, just account like a mental act is just an act directed at a proposition. And then I want to say, well, what directs the act at that proposition versus some other proposition? Give me some more details in the ontology of how intellectual acts work. He's resisted that. He's just said to be aware of a proposition is just to have an act directed at the proposition. And so given that the father is aware of one proposition that the son is not aware of, they're going to have distinct numerically different intellectual acts. Um, and so he, his model uh, is an attempt to be simpler. Um, but I contend that even if his model is simpler, it's much less um, explanatory. But that's always the case in philosophy if you posit a theory where you say, well, that's just primitive. It's just a brute fact. That's how it is. And then somebody else says, no, it's not a brute fact. I'm going to give you an explanation of how it works. Um, so this is just a, an example of those kinds of debates in philosophy. Um, and so I've tried to, in my forthcoming article on faith and philosophy, I've tried to motivate thinking, no, we should try to um, analyze this and not just take it as a primitive because, well, first of all, there's a lot of theology at stake in this. If we go with Hasker's model, we're going to be rejecting what Constantinople uh, three says. And that's a serious thing to think about. Even if you think the council was fallible and a reliable guide, it's a, it's a significant departure from the, the witness of the ecumenical councils. And for some people, including myself, right, I'm just not going to go there. I, I'm one, a model of the Trinity that's at least consistent with what they say. Um, and so I've, I'm holding out hope that the model I've articulated is consistent with Constantinople three and is um, a good starting place. I mean, I really see the model I'm articulating as a starting a conversation about the ontology of thought. Um, um, so if somebody else comes up with a better account, I'll be super excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Very awesome. So I think there might be a lingering question for some who let's say they haven't read any of your stuff. They're just hearing you explain this. And there might be some sort of worry that if we take mental tokens and consciousness in this way, does that potentially create sort of an, an active and a passive sort of power that's going on between the persons? And would that then cause some sort of potentiality in God and then cause all sorts of issues for things like divine simplicity? So I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I myself am 
is not as deeply committed to divine simplicity as other people might be. But nevertheless, I recognize that it's a very traditional sort of view. And so the model that I'm articulating, I'm wanting it to be neutral with regard to whether it requires simplicity or not. So if you're all in for simplicity, um, there's the model is consistent or can well can be can be consistent with some accounts of divine simplicity, but it also can be consistent with um, divine mutability. Um, and the move is this. Um, and I discovered this move in Henry of Ghent, who's a critic of Thomas Aquinas, right, writing in the 1280s. So Aquinas thinks there's only active power in God. There's no passive powers in God. And the reason why Aquinas rejects this is because he's assuming that these powers are contraries of each other. So either your actual or your potential, you can't be both at the same time. So you get an actualization given divine simplicity. Aquinas says we should deny any passive power in God because that would imply any uh, change in something. Henry of Ghent says, yeah, that's right, Aquinas, but you know what? Passive power um, does not have to be contrary to active power. And so his example, so if you want a way to to, to mark this linguistically, Henry's going to say that there are passive possibilities in God. And here's the, the basic thought. When you're performing some action, when you're walking, um, you're being moved. And you're being moved is at the same time as when you're acting. So the passive possibility is um, simultaneous with the actuality. So in contemporary uh, theories of modality, there's a trivial inference. If something is actual, then it's possible. So Henry makes a similar kind of move. Given that there are things that are actual in God, that means it's possible in God. And so if it's actual that God the Son is eternally generated, then that means it's possible for the Son to be eternally generated, which is a passive um, act, to be generated. So God the Father is generating, God the Son is generated, and Henry thinks this is a passive act, so the son's personal property is a, is a passive act. But there's no contrary with actuality because it's simultaneous in eternity. So it's not uh, a potentiality that gets actualized. It's just um, an actuality that's a passive one. Um, and so um, Henry even takes this further um, when he's talking about the the entire uniqueness of the eternal generation of the sun. And he's a, he's talking about Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles and what Aquinas says about it in there. And Aquinas says that we have to say that the first divine person is a father because there's only an active power and there's no mother. Can't say the first divine person's mother because there's no passive potentiality there. Henry says, that's wrong. And it's wrong because there are passive um, possibilities in God that are simultaneous with actuality. And so Henry goes on to say that because of this, we can say the first divine person is the divine mother, is God the mother. But we can also call him God the father. Each one has an appropriate um, kind of name for it. And so Henry thinks that you can say, um, inconsistent with his metaphysics, that the first divine person is like a mother, eternally giving birth to the son. Because uh, it's from the, and, and there's an earlier Spanish council that talks about the son being generated from the womb of the father. Um, and so Henry sort of in that, in that spirit. So you can have passive powers. They're just not actualized. They're always consistent. They're always uh, simultaneous with the acts. And so if you're in with divine simplicity, this is the way that the model I've developed should be understood. Um, yeah. Very interesting. 
Man, we could have a whole episode on on Henry, I guess. Uh, obviously, we, we need could do writing you, a book on it. <laughs> yeah, you, I was going to mention. I th- I thought you had a book. So when when is that supposed to come out? Oh, probably like two years or so. I'm still finishing the the last few chapters of it. Yeah, Henry's a very Man. unique theologian. Uh, most people haven't written about him because he's so difficult. Um, Stephen Dumont once said he's a professor at Notre Dame said to me, that's like working on medieval astrophysics. It's so complicated. <laughs> so I've, I basically have spent 15 years sorting it or trying to sort it out. And so my book is going to try to explain Henry's system of the Trinity. Well, I am thrilled for when that comes out because I, I, I've enjoyed the portions of Henry that I've read and found him very interesting and enlightening. So I'm excited for that. Uh, one last question as we wrap up that I want to ask you. You make this claim about Constantinople three that the statements regarding the Trinity are not merely linguistic counting rules about how we should speak, but they're about the reference of the terms hypostasis, usia, dunamis, etc. And I'm wondering what you mean by that. And in my in the back of my head, I'm thinking of essays like Sarah Coakley, who, I don't know, it's, that's probably like a 15-year-old essay, even lo- older, where she's trying to cash out Chalcedon and gives various views about how you can understand it, whether it's... I don't remember the terminology she uses, but it's sort of like this metaphorical way of understanding it, a really rigid literal, and then sort of like this just grammatical framework where it's almost linguistic as if these are just the ways you have to speak, but the sort of the metaphysical machinery underneath is really interchangeable. So I'm wondering, when you talk about this, is it similar to that? Are you wanting to say, no, these Constantinople 3, for example, is a very robust statement? that you have to have certain metaphysical commitments? Or is this something different that you're saying here and you're meaning something else? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't have a fully worked out uh, response to the question right now, Um, but here's my first pass at it. Um, I think the council gives us ontological guidance for a range of ontologies that you could have, and it rules out very specific ontologies. So it's um, so it's affirming whatever your account of natures are. There's just numerically one in the case of the Trinity. Whatever your account of divine volitions are, the divine persons share numerically the same divine volition. So, like in my model of the Trinity that I've been articulating, right, I'm getting more uh, lifting up the hood, so to speak, and looking at more of the fine grained ontological details by infer- by um, proposing mental tokens and propositions and things like that, which you don't get in Constantinople three. Um, so I think that the Constantinople three gives us um, guides. And so when I say that the council is talking about the reference of the terms, because um, the council does t- talk about like we're, um, and we should apprehend one divine nature, one divine essence, right? And that's not a grammatical feature. It's not just about grammar, um, but there's some kind of reference going on. Um, so I think that the council should not be read as just a, a grammar book, Um it is. It does give us grammar. It does do that. But I think it does more than that. So it 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 signals a sort of a, um, a possible range of ontologies, um, and it rules out a lot of them. And I think that it rules out a lot of contemporary social models of the Trinity. I don't think like Hasker's model of the Trinity um, affirms what Constantinople rejects. Um, and so I'm. Yeah, so I think that the, the, the council does have some ontological um, implications or ontological statements. So even if they are not as fine-grained as 
uh, could be, uh, I think it does give you um, guidance and direction for which sort of ontologies would be consistent with it. Um, yeah, so I think that I think that's the way it is. If you yeah, if you thought it was just grammatical or linguistic, um, then that could be consistent with metaphysical anti-realism, right? Which would be atheism. If you're yeah. if you're anti-realist about God or the Trinity, um, right? Then you're you're abandoning the whole project of conciliar trinitarianism. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, similarly, right? The council talks about the two wills in Christ, right? So we uh, conciliar. Christians do want to say that Christ does have a human will. That's just not a matter of language, but it's a fact. <laughs> um, it's an ontological fact, so we need ontological commitment to that. But once you've said that, then you can ask, okay, what exactly is a will? Then you can get into the the details uh, on the ontology of that, whether you, you know, whether you're a physicalist or or what have you in your ontology. Um, but helpful. it does give you guidelines, yeah. Yeah. So, man, this has been awesome. So I imagine a lot of our listeners are going to say, well, I need to go read a, a bunch of your work now. In I think, tell me just where's the best place to go to find like a list of your publications and to keep up with your work? Oh, uh, Phil Papers. If you if you go to Phil Papers, I think it's .org, um, just type in my name, Scott M. Williams, you'll get a list of my publications. Um, I have... Yeah, again, the article coming out, Faith and Philosophy, which is has Gregory of Nyssa in the title. Um, and then there's another article, a book chapter that's coming out in the festrip for Marilyn McCord Adams, who I'd studied with at Oxford. In that article, it's titled, if I remember right, um, Why There Wasn't and How There Could Be a Latin Social Trinity. And so in that chapter, I look at what Aquinas, Scotus, and Henry of Ghent say about Augustine's statement that the spirit is the love between the father and the son. And so I look at the details of the different accounts. And I try to show that Henry of Ghent proposes an account of that, that is consistent with the sort of model I'm trying to develop, namely that a particular divine person contributes to the divine person's intellectual life. So they can be a distinct intellectual or intentional object. Um, Cause Henry thinks that the um, God, the son is required for the divine persons to have second order um, knowledge to know that they know things. And he thinks that the Holy Spirit is required for the divine persons to love that they love the divine nature. Um, I don't have that part in my model, um, but the idea that a divine person contributes to the propositional content of some thoughts is something that Henry sort of motivated in me to investigate a bit more. So that's in that festrift to Marilyn Adams. Well, apparently I need to read all of your stuff. So now I need to go find this and read it. You're doing all the cool, interesting things. So Scott, this has been tremendous, awesome, all sorts of action-packed content in here. So thank you for the, taking the time to share some of your research and some of the work that you've dedicated years, decades of your life to thinking about and working through. We are all thankful for those like you who are willing to sacrifice of their time and of their sleep and all those things to think and write and to provide this for us. So thank you. And for everybody's listening, again, I want to encourage you to go find these uh, essays, these articles, these chapters from Scott, his books, those other things. Invest in them, read them, share them, because it helps encourage people like Scott. So, I mean, if, if you find something really helpful, I encourage you to find, you know, different scholars' emails and just email them and say, hey, thanks for this. This was really helpful. Those things can be really encouraging. So, Scott, thank you for this because yeah, it was helpful for me. Uh, and it's really helped me to think about things and to understand different aspects. So really, really appreciate it. And everybody's been listening. This is the only analytic 
Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.